Chapter 38 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by John Brandon. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 38 by Thomas Burns. The Rogues' Gallery. Why Thieves Are Photographed. Telltale Signs. Peculiarities of Criminals. Where it does not matter, but in a fashionable place of amusement, which blazed with light and was radiant with the shimmer of silks, the flash of jewels, and the artificial glories with which wealth and fashion surround themselves, a tall, well-dressed man was standing with a lady on his arm, waiting till the outgoing throng gave him exit. A judge of the Supreme Court was just behind him, and at his elbow was a banker whose name is powerful on Wall Street. With suave manners, a face massive and intelligent, and apparel in unexceptionable taste, there was yet something about the man that recalled other and strangely remote associations. It certainly was not the dress or attitude or air that seemed familiar, nor was it the quick, sharp eyes that lighted up and seemed indeed the most notable features of the countenance, nor could it be the neatly trimmed whiskers or the somewhat sallow cheeks they covered, and certainly no suggestion of recognition could lie in the thin hair, carefully brushed back from a forehead that bulged out into knobs and was crossed by some deep lines. But yet, as that same forehead was bowed for a moment, what was there in it that recalled something? A man, or a statue, or a picture? In a moment the head was erect again, the face smiling, and in the change the fancied familiarity melted, but did not die away. It was still there, and for a moment it was intensified, as a sudden look of recognition, a look that had a flash of malice in it, came into the sharp eyes which had caught mine, as I stood by the entrance watching him. This elegant and courtly gentleman was a professional criminal, and was last sentenced for burglary. A burglar! This prim, genteel, thoughtful-looking personage he would be a minister or merchant or physician at the first glance to nine men out of ten. Here in the flare of the gaslight, in the heart of fashion, with a judge at his back and a millionaire at his elbow. A burglar? Not low-browed, sullen, with a stealthy glance and hunted air. Not at all as fancy and romance have pictured him but holding his head as high as his judicial and capitalist neighbors. And with that recognition, memory faithful to the impression that bulging forehead and its deep lines had wrought, recalled a wooden frame with a photograph enclosed in it, a photograph of a bowed, distorted face, through whose half-closed eyelids two small specks seemed to glare maliciously, surmounted by a forehead, with two knobs and some black lines upon it. That was it. The photograph was this man's portrait, 
and the place where it hung was the rogues' gallery. In that does the usefulness of the rogues' gallery lie. There are people who look at the pictures and say, Of what good can these twisted and unnatural faces be? Were their owners met in the streets, their countenances would be composed and altogether free of these distortions by which they have tried to cheat the purpose of the police in photographing them. It is a mistake to suppose that no one would know them. The very cleverest criminals who have distorted their features into a false physiognomy for the camera have made their grimaces in vain. The sun has been too quick for them and has imprisoned the lines of the profile and the features and caught certain peculiarities that could not be disguised. There is not a portrait in the rogues' gallery but has some marked characteristics by which, if studied in detail, one could identify the man who sat for it. A general idea of the looks of a person derived from one of these pictures may be very misleading. The criminal himself will try to make it so, by resorting to every possible means to alter his appearance. He can grow or shave off a beard or mustache. He can change the color of either. Or he may become full-faced or lantern-jawed in time. But the skilled detective knows all this and looks for distinguishing marks peculiar to his subject. It was the bulging brow and the deep lines of the forehead that revealed the identity of the well-dressed burglar in the fashionable throng. It did not matter much what disguise he assumed. These ineffable peculiarities would remain as telltale signs that could always be recognized. Detectives frequently succeed in singling out criminals who have tried every device to deceive the camera, and often the very men who have gone to the most trouble to make their pictures useless have been betrayed by them. But photographs must not be considered merely as portraits, when criminals are to be identified by them. In some cases, however, they are quite sufficient. The old dodge of distorting the features is not often attempted nowadays. When we have a man with a strong case against him, he knows that his portrait, in some shape or other, must be added to the gallery, and he also knows that it is absurd to try and defeat the purposes of justice. That makes him resign to his fate, and all our recent photographs are good ones. We always aim to have the best we can get, for photography has been an invaluable aid to the police. The Rogues' Gallery and Criminal Directory in New York is the most complete in the country. There are numbers of instances where a criminal appears in public under circumstances far different from those under which he is brought to police headquarters. The burglar before mentioned is a good example of what a swell cracksman may look like when he has the means and taste to dress himself in fashionable clothes. There are scores of men and women whose appearance in the streets gives no hint of their real character. Deception is their business, and they study its arts carefully. It is true there are criminals brought to headquarters who even in sitting for a photograph of the rogues' gallery show a weakness to appear to advantage, and adjust dress, tie, and hair with as much concern 
as if the picture was intended for their dearest friends. I have seen women, especially, whose vanity cropped out the moment the camera was turned on them, but that is infrequent, and one must look for the faces seen in the rogues' gallery in other shapes and with other accompaniments than those that appear in a photograph. All criminals have their weaknesses. The lower class of them spend their money in the way their instincts dictate. Some are slovenly hulks of fellows who pride themselves on shabbiness, and to them shabbiness is a part of their business. Then there are others of the flashy order who run into extremes in dress and copy the gamblers and variety theater performers in their attire. But there are many, and they are of the higher and more dangerous order of criminals who carry no suggestion of their calling about them. Here is where the public err. They imagine that all burglars look like Bill Sykes and Flash Toby Crackett, whereas the most modest and most gentlemanly people they meet may be faithful representatives of these characters. Nearly all great criminals lead double lives, strange as it may appear. It is a fact that some of the most unscrupulous rascals who ever cracked a safe or turned out a counterfeit were at home model husbands and fathers. In a great many cases, wives have aided their guilty partners in their villainy, and the children, too, have taken a hand in it. But all suggestion of the criminal's calling was left outside the front door. The family of a notorious and dangerous forger lived quietly and respectably, mingled with the best of people, and were well liked by all who met them. Another equally dangerous criminal who was found dead near Yonkers, probably made away with by his associates, was a fine-looking man with cultured tastes and refined manners. Others would pass for honest and industrious mechanics, and more than one of them has well provided for his old mother and his sisters. I recall one desperate fellow who paid for his two little daughters' education at a convent in Canada, from which they were graduated well-bred and bright young ladies, without ever a suspicion of their father's business reaching them. This same thing has been done by some of the hardest cases we have to contend with. One of the most noted pickpockets in the country had children whose education, dress, and manners won general admiration. There is nothing to mark people of that stamp as a class. Nor is the physiognomy a safe guide, but on the contrary it is often a very poor one. In the rogues' gallery may be seen photographs of rascals who resemble the best people in the country, in some instances sufficiently like personal acquaintances to admit of mistaking one for the other, which, by the way, is no uncommon occurrence. It is easy for a detective to pick up the wrong man. Time and again I have seen victims of thieves when called upon in court to identify a prisoner seated among a number of onlookers, pick out his captor or a court clerk as the offender. Thieves generally dress up to their business, 
I do not mean that they indicate their business by their dress, but just the opposite. They attire themselves so as to attract the least attention from the class of people among whom they wish to operate. To do this they must dress like this class. If they are among poor people, they dress shabbily. If among well-to-do folks, they put on style. If among sporting men, they are flashy in attire. It is a great thing to escape notice, to meet a man in conversation, and yet leave no distinct impression of face or personality. I remember one man whose scarred cheek and missing eye would mark him anywhere. But he managed to be so sober in his dress that no one seemed to notice his personal peculiarities. Another, a railroad pickpocket, excels in gaining confidence, and yet leaving scant recollection of his dress and features. One scoundrel known as the mourner and his wife had faces thoroughly adapted for their business, which was to pick pockets at wakes and funerals, and they were the most solemn-looking pair I ever saw. River thieves and low burglars fill the popular idea of criminals' appearance, and they are as hard-looking brutes as can be found. So are a good many of the more desperate fellows. Nugent, the Manhattan bank burglar, carried a good deal of his old business of a butcher in his appearance. But there was something about him that suggested the criminal. There are numbers of the confidence men, too, who, in spite of their gentlemanly dress and conversational powers, look the very incarnation of sharpers. In fact, it is unwise to judge by appearances, and it is not always safe to judge against them. A long experience of men and their ways is always needed to place people where they belong. End of chapter 38